Hey guys, welcome to Moderate Party. I'm your host, Hillary Lombard, and I am happy to be back. We have been off for a couple of weeks because I've been volunteering for the midterms. It was such a fulfilling experience, and I think that there is something so re-energizing about giving your time to other people. Um, but not just to other people, kind of in service of your country, you know? I mean, it, feel, it felt great to be a part of an election, to actually see the mechanics of it, to help people vote, and to see what voting means to people. It, it was just really special. I highly recommend. I also recommend volunteering on a campaign, um, even if it's just phone banking or doing God's work and canvassing. Um, your effort makes an impact, and it's worth it. I'll get off my soapbox about that, but I seriously, seriously recommend it. So our first episode back is going to be about the only thing really worth talking about right now, and that's the midterms, also known as Revenge of the Moderates. <laughs> this election was extremism's first big defeat, and it makes my little moderate heart go pitter-patter. Voters went to the ballot box and they chose moderates, and it fills me with so much hope, like big, stupid, naive levels of hope. Hope against my cynicism and hope against long odds, even hope against my better judgment. I feel really proud of my country, and I feel vindicated as a moderate. Poll data would suggest that there are a lot of moderates in this country, but they're often reduced to a whisper. But in this election, moderates stood up. They stood up to be counted, and as a result, the victory was decisive. From the Senate to the State House, Americans proved my longstanding belief that the role of the moderate is to be the enemy of the extremist. And what a formidable enemy we turned out to be. So today I'm joined by Debbie Cox-Boltan. She's the CEO of the New Deal Leaders, which is an organization that helps develop and nurture the next generation of moderate Democratic leaders. Some of you might remember Debbie from an episode that we did about the Democratic Party, but I wanted to bring her back because her group works with the elected officials that were on the front line of this election. They're a critical piece of this moderate victory, so I wanted to talk to her about why it happened and how it can happen again. We also chat about why issues like faith belong to one party and not the other, the role that abortion played in the election, whether or not Biden should run again, and lessons that both parties should learn moving forward. One housekeeping note is that we did record this episode before we knew the results in Arizona and Nevada, so keep that in mind as you listen. I hope that you guys enjoy this conversation, and if you have thoughts on the episode, something that you read in the news, a question, a guest suggestion, or you just want to tell me what's on your mind, my inbox is always open. So shoot an email over to talk at moderatepartypodcast.com. I reply to all of them. Sometimes it takes me a little while, but I promise I get to all of them. So without any further ado, let's get started. It's good to be back, guys. Debbie, hello, and welcome back to Moderate Party. Hillary, it's so nice to see you. Thanks for having me. If you come five times, I'll get you like an SNL-style jacket. Oh, my God. I'm totally doing that. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be gorgeous. Have like moderate party and rhinestones. I love that. I want that. Me and Steve Martin. Debbie and Steve. What a <laughs> dynamic duo. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> okay, so Steve Martin jokes aside, let's talk business. We're recording this in the very sensitive hours immediately after an election. And while we don't have all of the results, we're still waiting on the Senate count in Nevada and Arizona. What's jumping out at you right now? Like, what are what hot takes do you have with what we know so far? You know, we are talking before a number of big races are decided, but at the and, and obviously the balance of the Senate, <laughs> you know, some big some big questions. But the truth is, regardless of what of what the outcome of some of those things, I think there's some pretty clear takeaways, which I truthfully was not sure was going to be the case. Uh, you know when. We were going into Tuesday night, but I mean, I think it was a very, very good night. 
for moderates, which is the moderate podcast. A very good night yes. for moderates. A, a, a very good night for democracy. <laughs> a very good night for choice. You know, there were, there were a handful of things that were clearly threads. The truth is, you know, there was such a narrative going into the election that this was going to be this big, big red wave that didn't materialize. I mean, I think that regardless of the final outcome of some of these races, which will, you know, shape the landscape in important ways, the big, big takeaway is that, um, you know, frankly, mainstream Democrats in, in most cases beat very extreme Republicans. Democrats nominated across the board much more moderate candidates, and the Republicans got out of their primaries very extreme, a lot of very extreme folks who were election deniers, who were, um, you know, just on the far right side of their party. And that that ended up showing. And, you know, where they didn't, they had a better night. Brian Kemp in Georgia, as an example, right? So, um, so I think that that, you know, that bodes well for all of us who believe that there's a big, wide swath of people in the center who care about democracy, care about some shared values. Yeah, you know, I was really prepared for a bad night. Honestly, I think it can feel like moderates are an endangered species these days. And I think that I was kind of preparing for the midterms to be like the final nail in that coffin, especially if you consider moderate flight. Like we've had moderate members of Congress retiring or getting primaried at an alarming rate and a much higher rate than their more partisan peers. And the results that we have so far just make me feel so warm and fuzzy for our country because we are choosing to turn away from extremism. Totally. We're choosing democracy. And I feel so fortunate for that result because it was a bit of a gamble. I mean, there was a lot of press surrounding Democrats' strategy of promoting the more extremist Republican candidates since it would be easier to beat them in the general. And I just feel like we're really lucky that things turned out the way they did instead of if that strategy backfired, then Democrats would have helped Republicans elect very extreme candidates to Congress. Yeah. Can I say, can I say something on that, Hillary? I'm just going to say, I don't know if it's a hot take or not, but it's, it, it may not be a popular take right today. Uh, but I think I still wish we hadn't done that. I was against it. I don't believe it was a good idea. I think it's way too risky. I mean, democracy is on the line. We'll see what happens in Arizona with Carrie Lake and, you know, um, who's, you know, there's a couple, you know, pretty extreme election deniers still, you know, races to be called. Um, I'm glad, you know, I guess I am glad that it worked out the way it did. <laughs> but at the same time, I, I just think, you know, we, you got to let the people decide. And I really, really strongly was against the idea of Democrats playing Republican primaries. And I, and I stand by that today. And I think it just tastes bad, right? I mean, so much of Democratic messaging is based around this idea of protecting democracy. Like, they exclusively campaign from the high road, saying, like, MAGA Republicans are extreme and they're crazy and they're putting democracy and freedom on the ballot. And just from a voter's perspective, I don't know how you can trust their intentions on that message after you hear that they're actually spending money to promote the more extreme candidate. I just... Right. Yeah. No, I totally agree with you 100%. I, I do want to be clear, that's... There were plenty of places that Democrats didn't play where Republicans yes. still <laughs> still nominated a crazy election denier and those people mm -hmm. lost. So, so all by themselves. All by themselves. So I do think, I, mean, I think it's fair. Like, that's an important point to get out there. This was not all about Democrats picking their opponents. But I totally agree with your assessment, which is this is, you know, to me, if we're going to fight for democracy, if we're going to fight for trying to get people to, to take some steps back from politics being a blood sport and really about governing this country in a responsible adult way, then to me, those tactics just don't make sense. 
Um, I will say that the state and local stuff, which is what I do, as you know, state was even a bigger win than it was even at the federal level. We had a crazy, crazy night in terms of Democrats doing well on the state legislative level, uh, like, you know, history defying. In Michigan, where we flipped both houses, um, you know, I, I, I talked to somebody yesterday about why that happened. And, you know, the first thing they raised was that they had finally had fair redistricting in Michigan. And so I get the, um, I guess I say that to say I get the, um, I get the instinct that that it's already not fair. So like, let's, you know, take any advantage we can, right? But like, but that to me, that's just not, that's just, it's not okay. And particularly to your point, if we, you know, if we're talking about people who really care about democracy, we can't then game out democracy, right? And that <laughs> yeah. just feels, that just yeah. feels, uh, feels off message. <laughs> right. Can I add an unpopular opinion you, to your unpopular you may. opinion? You I may. I think it's a mistake to gerrymander pro- democracy republicans out of their seat like to use adam kinzinger as an example it's in illinois was redrawn without him in it it's one thing to run against them but to actually end the fight before it even starts by gerrymandering them out of their seat i just think that's ridiculous a lot of congress people that have bucked their party particularly on the republican side are then attacked by that very same party for doing that and i just think that if there is no refuge for those that do courageous things, they're going to stop doing them. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I don't share that at all. I mean, look, I'm an Adam Kinzinger fan, you know, on the Liz, Liz Cheney front, like, you know, what she's done, democracy is heroic and patriotic and every other word you can think of. Um, you know, I don't agree with Liz Cheney's politics on lots of other things, choice being number one, right? So I'm totally fine with running a candidate against them, right? Of course, you know what I mean? Running a Democrat that they think can beat them in a district that, you know, that cares about different things that Democrats might care about. But I totally agree. Gaming the system. Um, and it's really sad, actually, what happened on Tuesday night. I mean, we basically show that there is a, a party that is, um, you know, not really functioning very, very well, that has gone way too far to their extreme. And that's not good for democracy. Like the public, you know, this, we need two healthy functioning parties that are having debates, you know, those cute debates mm -hmm. we used to have about what's the right size of a tax cut, right? Wasn't that fun when we were doing no, that? Yeah. And not about, you know, what, whether some people should be called people or not, or whether, you know, we're going to tear down institutions. So um, I totally agree. It's not a good thing to, um, to gerrymander in any sense, um, not just to, you know, not just with those folks. I mean, look what happened in Florida, right? I mean, Florida was the outlier. Florida redistricting was terrible, was very one-sided, was, uh, you know, for, for the, toward the Republican Party. And they did great. I mean, they swept up in Florida. And so, you know, that's not a good thing either, right? We need competitive elections across the country. Democracy depends on it. Isn't it crazy that it seems like a luxury to just disagree with Liz Cheney on a political issue? Because, I mean, that's a luxury that right now I don't have. <laughs> but... Uh, gerrymandering is interesting, actually, and I'm happy that you brought it up because I was reading this article by Michael Brendan Doherty in National Review, and he was talking about how Republicans performed poorly in districts that they had gerrymandered and actually performed better in a more fair district. Interesting. Yeah, that's that is. I didn't see the article. Are you suggesting that voters knew that and there was backlash against the process? Is that kind of your takeaway from that piece? I think my takeaway, actually, weirdly, is that when you're running an extreme candidate, even if you're running them in a district that you drew yourself, you can still lose. 
Yeah, I agree with that. I totally agree with that. Yeah, I thought, you know, there there, there were so many interesting takeaways from, from Tuesday night. Um, and again, I think extremism was the number one, that underline, underline, exclamation point, exclamation point, extremism lost. And, and frankly, Trumpism lost, right? I mean, Trump had a terrible night. And, you know, it's, it's really interesting to watch what's going to happen in the Republican Party as they grapple with that and what that means for 24 and all, and all kinds of things. But um, that's not my side of the aisle, but it's it's super interesting. Um, but I, I, another thing that I thought was super interesting about Tuesday is that there, that, you know, the narrative going into Tuesday night was um, it's either the economy or choice, and the economy is going to trump. No pun intended. And I thought the other takeaway for me was that voters absolutely can walk and chew gum at the same time. That they can care about both things. That they, you know, that they're they're much more sophisticated than we gave them credit for. That they're like, you know what. Um, you know, I, I do care about both things. And, uh, you know, and I'm what I'm deciding is that on balance, <laughs> you know, the Democrat, again, for the very most part, mainstream Democrats that got nominated in these in these general elections, so I'm going to go with them. And, you know, in, in, in Kentucky, right, I mean, there must have been people who said I'm going to choose for choose Rand Paul um, and I'm going to choose to vote against this abortion ban being um, enshrined in our Constitution. That's fascinating to me. So I think it's going to be super interesting as we get, you know, you know, down into the polling and the cross tabs and everything else to like find out exactly where, you know, people voted and how they voted in different places, because it's it was it was not the night anybody was expecting. You know, I've gotten a lot of listener emails since the election results started coming in. And one of the most interesting ones that I've received so far is from a listener that describes themselves as center right and they're from Michigan. And they wrote me basically saying that they were really hesitant to pull the lever for Tudor Dixon. That's Gretchen Whitmer's opponent for the Michigan governor's race. Listeners, if you're not familiar. He was really hesitant to pull the lever and vote for her because of her position on choice. But the fact that Michigan actually put choice on the ballot as a ballot measure, they felt comfortable voting for Tudor Dixon because they could also vote to protect choice on using the ballot measure. Yeah, interesting. And I just think this is a more bipartisan issue than we might have thought. Yeah, and it absolutely is. And that that's that came through loud and clear. And I, you know, and, and I would say on on um, Gretchen Whitmer, the Democratic governor incumbent that, that won in, in Michigan, I mean, um, and your listener may disagree with this, but, um, you know, I mean, she is a good example about of someone who, you know, ran on really kitchen table issues. And that's why they also did did well. I mean, um, you know, she we got to fix the fix the damn roads, I think was her first slogan, right? When she was first elected. And, and now it's about things around workforce and, um, and education. So, you know, these are not, um, and then obviously the, the, the whole election, I mean, the Michigan was an interesting case study because they also had the backdrop of literally armed people who had stormed the Capitol, the, um, the, 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 the plot that was foiled to kidnap the, the governor uh, and people went to jail. So, you know, the the concept of chaos, which we're all so afraid of in this country, was really in Michigan, like playing out in real time, right, of this really scary reality that could exist. And so I think that um, in Michigan, and again, you know, not only did the choice pass, all three constitutional officers were running against election deniers, all three women won. They flipped both houses of the legislature, um, which is so Michigan of like all the states did had the best Democratic outcome. I was happy on a on a, another on a bright note, uh, too, um, that 
I was worried about what was going to happen on election night. Like I was, I don't know how you were feeling, but I was. Do you mean like violence? Like, yeah, just chaos, right? Violence, people not accepting election results. Again, we have an out an Arizona outstanding one where we'll see if that if we have a, if we have an example. But um, you know, for the most part, it was a pretty calm night. Was was that went pretty smoothly as a real testament to our election system, to all of the. And I mean, a huge shout out to all the people who uh, worked the elections and the polls this time around in particular under this kind of cloud of chaos and so um so i'm 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 excited by that prospect that we can get back to a time <laughs> when we you know when we can actually you know remember that we actually have you know a very very good and solid election system um you know and the de- democracy is working here but um you know we'll see there's a lot of work to do between here and and 24 uh, you know a lot of the ho- high profile election deniers um lost races as we've been talking about but a boatload got elected to congress what was it like 70 percent of republicans running were election deniers and, and yes. or something something really crazy actually a really yeah crazy i learned number. that harrowing statistic from your midterm memo <laughs> oh, so even though a lot of people lost y- y- you don't have 70 percent running some unopposed that weren't going to win right so um so there's plenty of people who got elected so there's uh, I don't mean to say uh, by that comment about things went well that everything's behind us and okay, good, we can pack up and go home. It's all working. Uh, clearly, there's going to be a lot to do, um, but I do hope it sent a message to both parties that extreme, you know, extremism is not is not going to win on the ballot. I want to circle back to Michigan for a second. So at the top of the ticket, we have Gretchen Whitmer running for governor, right? And I want to be very clear: I stand Gretchen Whitmer. <laughs> I think that she is so good at her job and she is just a bad ass. Yeah. She's been such a lion for women's rights and for reproductive choice. And I love that about her. Right. And I was watching this clip on I think it was ABC. Uh-huh. And she's wearing this T-shirt that has in like a needlepoint font, my body, my choice on it. Right. So it's clearly making a statement. But as soon as a reporter asks her what the biggest issue in the economy is, she doesn't miss a beat. She says the economy. So to your point, like. She's walking and chewing gum at the same time. And I think that Michigan is a weird microcosm for the country because all of these issues that we've talked about today, like abortion, extremism, uh, COVID economic recovery, like all of these are especially salient in Michigan. So what's your take on that? Because I know that the New Deal leaders are really active in Michigan Right. Or you've done a lot of work there. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Including Secretary of State, which I'm so delighted she was reelected. She's also fantastic. She's also a badass, we'll say. Jocelyn Benson. <laughs> yeah, I think you hit on it. I, I think it's really like that basically the, you know, the the, lands, the landscape was there and they had really great candidates. Right. I mean, who were not extremists, who were um, who were bread and butter type of, you know, kitchen table issue people. Um, and, and then they nominated a lot of people who weren't and so on the other side. So, um, I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned from Michigan. There's, you know, there's a lot of le- lessons to be learned across the country. I mean, um, you know, another one that we were watching really early on, right. was like, uh, Abigail Spanberger in Virginia. Abigail Spanberger <laughs> is a moderate icon. She's on this a podcast. moderate, you know, Democrat in Virgin Virginia in a very, very swing district. We were watching that district specifically to say, okay, if, 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 if she can hold on, we might be okay. If she loses by a lot, it's going to be a very long night, you know, one of those type of districts. And so, um, so, you know, to have her, uh, Sharice Davids and Kansas, I mean, just, you know, you pick a bunch of these very moderate Democrats who are holding really, really swing state seats. Um, 
you know, I think that there's a lot of lessons to be learned about what those folks were talking about. And if you go down the go down the the line, they were talking about how do we bring down inflation? How do we get people back? You know, make sure people are working. You know, how do we bring down inflation? You know, I mean, just these are the, the issues that they were talking about, and and I think that it. It, it really showed, right? And, and again, and also were, did not shy to your point. I loved your point. I love the image of that, of the Governor Whitmer with the t-shirt talking about the economy. To my point, you can shoot, shoot come. And I think there was a lot of yeah. like hand wringing about, oh my gosh, <laughs> inflation is so high, which is absolutely true. And we've got to do something about it. I, you know, I would make the argument that it's, um, you know, we, the Democrats have put in a place a lot of things, including the Inflation Reduction Act, which will kick in and hopefully, you know, bring this stuff down. We're dealing with global issues from the COVID and the supply chain and the war. So there's, it's a complicated thing, but, you know, it's hard to run in that environment, you know, as a, as a party in in power. And so, um, you know, obviously we were talking about the historic nature of this, you know, we're running with 8% inflation and, you know, historical headwinds of just parties in power really, you know, usually losing a lot of seats. Um, That's how historic, that's why like people are like, you know, who might not follow politics all the time, like, why are you guys so happy? Like, you still, you might, you know, you're, you're going to lose the House and you, you see, you don't even know if you're going to lose the Senate yet. Why are you so happy? Because it was such a, um, an election that bucked every expectation in terms of what the trends should have been given the environment, given the historic precedent. So, but I think that there's a lot of Democrats who have, have provided playbooks uh, for future elections for Democrats on how to talk both about, you know, what might be, perceived as more progressive issues like choice, although I, I'm with you. I don't think choice is a, you know, <clears throat> it's talked about that way nationally. I think choice is a bipartisan issue, particularly for women. And a liberty issue. And a liberty and freedom issue. It's not a, you know, it, it, yes, exactly. <laughs> I talked to someone yesterday, a, a New Deal leader, a, reg- a representative in Kentucky, um, about their their abortion, the thing that the abortion-related um, mm-hmm. ballot initiative or whatever it was, um, which would have enshrined it's kind of actually interesting, but uh, about keeping abortion, uh, anti-abortion language out of their constitution, right? And, um, you know, and it's, um, it, it was it was absolutely a bipartisan issue in Kentucky, right? It was absolutely something that people, um, people, and that turned people out, you know, and it wasn't, it wasn't an either or. And I think that it also really reaffirms what happened in Kansas. So, Listeners, if you're not familiar with the Kansas situation, there was basically a ballot measure during their special election that gave voters the opportunity to protect a woman's right to choose. And people in Kansas voted overwhelmingly to do it. Like every county, even rural counties, went in favor of protecting a woman's right to choose. And a lot of people at the time kind of tried to paint Kansas like an anomaly, like there's something weird about Kansas. But it's not true. Kansas is a red state that protected a woman's right to choose. And now with Kentucky, it's not an anomaly. We can actually say that this has happened in multiple states across the country. Exactly, exactly. You know what's interesting about the Kentucky one, not to digress for a second, um, but I will say, do it anyway, because I just found it fascinating and maybe your your listeners won't know because I I sure didn't know until I learned yesterday. So all the, what the Kentucky measure did was just to say, we're not going to put in our constitution language that says, that, d- that denies the right to choose in our constitution. It doesn't say we're going to make sure that abortion is legal in Kentucky. And so, so basically it's, it was essentially to try to give cover to the legislature that when they passed abortion bans, it was backed up by the constitution. 
So basically, I'm, I was asking um, a friend, yeah, this, this person I was talking to yesterday, like, so what happens when all these people who voted, what I assume, or were, did they understand that? Are they going to wake up tomorrow and be like, what do you mean the Kentucky legislature just passed an abortion ban? Didn't we just vote on that? And it's, she's like, no, I, she's like, I don't know. I don't think people understood that because it was a complicated message and we just had to get the message out and vote no, vote no, vote no. So I'm going to be super interesting to, interested to watch what that pretends for like future elections if people thought that they just voted down an abortion ban but really they didn't in their state i think that's going to be just a little side note for people to watch you know down the road i thought that was i was like i had no idea <laughs> i thought you i thought you made it illegal in kentucky she's like oh no no that's all it <laughs> you know since we're in this solid digression i do have an off-topic question that i'm curious uh to know your thoughts on I think that there's really no denying that the MAGA movement that we see today doesn't have a whole lot in common with what many think of as the Republican Party, at least not the Republican Party of like 10 years ago. Right. And one of the key things that I point to for that is that they're not necessarily socially conservative. Like, I mean, there's definitely a lot of socially conservative people within that movement. But I mean, like Donald Trump is from New York. He's not socially conservative, at least he didn't used to be. And he, I mean, he used to be a Democrat. <laughs> and I think that that movement is more like populist, yes, conservative sometimes. So I'm curious if you think that the impact that abortion had on this election is a refutation of extremism or social conservatism. I, I, I go back to extremism. You know what I mean? I don't know what these what these answers would have looked like had there been um, you know, Glenn Youngkin. Yeah. Or just, or just different ant questions on the ballot about, about choice even, you know what I mean? But, you know, if you're, if you, so if it had been a more nuanced, you know, kind of understanding that there are, these are difficult choices women have to make and there are health issues and there are, um, you know, non-viability of fetus issues, which is complicated. And again, I think voters get that. And to kind of use this hammer that no time, no way, no ever is just not, doesn't even make sense in like real world in life. So I, I think it's a repudiation of extremism. And so, and to that extent, I would say it's MAGA because a MAGA is by definition extreme. But I want if I can, I want to say one other thing on the, on the, Republican kind of um, evolution, if if you will. I mean, I I also feel like um, the th other thing that kind of frustrates me that has happened over the lots of things that frustrate me over what's happened over thirty years. But um, but one thing that frustrates me is that this this idea that that the Republican Party owns faith. Um, and so, to your point about social conservatism, you know, I have a lot of elected officials I work. Or with around the country who are deeply, you know, on the Democratic side of the aisle that are people of deep faith. And what they would say if they were sitting here is their faith actually leads them in a different direction about politics and about the role of government, which is, you know, they point to the New Testament and Jesus helping people, helping, you know, the lepers and the, you know, everybody, right? That the, Jesus's teachings was, we've got to take care of one another. We've got to help one another. Don't leave anybody behind. And so they, from, from their perspective, that faith means that, you know, we've got to have things like a social safety net and we need to make sure government is working to, um, to help people. So I, so I just, I guess I just kind of hope that Democrats can find a way to talk about that because I don't think it's okay to seed faith, just like I don't think it's okay to see patriotism or freedom, you know, to, you know, all these things that somehow 
have been um, co-opted by one party, which I just don't think is a fair representation of what the party that I'm a member of stands for. Do you think that that's a blind spot for Democrats? I think I think all of these fit values, right? These types of values, whether it's freedom and patriotism and democracy um, and the value of work and um, and a number of things that that um, that I certainly believe in that we aren't always great at talking about. One of the things that we will have to grapple with as, as Democrats coming out of this election um, is, you know, I saw polling that concerns me going into the election about, you know, voters think both parties are extreme, right? Now, again, we moderate, we nominated more moderate candidates public this time around, Republicans nominated more extreme candidates and the results were what they were. Um, but I didn't, I didn't love um, seeing those, those polls that, you know, it, voters think both parties are extreme. So I think that's something that, you know, and this kind of circles back to the, it's not like we should, I don't think the lessons from this election should be Oh my gosh, we you know it's really a Republican problem. It, you know we've saw we've we're fine. <laughs> um, I think we should celebrate, and I, and gosh, I'm celebrating that that we did better than we thought, and that you know voters made me super proud that they understood the the, the, the extremism piece of things and 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 were more nuanced and and other things. Um, but we, you know that doesn't mean Democrats don't have work to do. We do because we have to make sure that we we bring down our own extremist positions that they think we that we have and we need to be mindful of that going into 24 and beyond how do you square that with the clip of joe biden that's going around where a reporter asks him what lessons he's going to learn from this or what he wants to change i can't remember the question exactly but he basically says i'm not going to change a goddamn thing yeah yeah no listen i mean and i i'm a believer that lessons can be learned whether you win or lose right i mean so of course and right. um you know, I mean, there are so many lessons. I, I wouldn't say everything went well. In Florida, you know, we could have a, a five, the next three of our five shows can be just on Florida. Um, what Democrats have to do to do there. But um, so I would say there's definitely things to learn. I, and and I would just go back to kind of some of the stuff I, I was talking about. One is, um, I mean, I will say that having Biden at the top of the ticket, though, despite his low approval rating, clearly made it harder for people to call the Democratic Party extremist. Joe Biden is not an extremist, you know, so I mean, he's just not. So and he had done some yeah, amazing, yeah. he got, you know, he's been an incredibly mm -hmm. successful president, actually. I get why people think that the country's going the wrong direction. It's been a tough few years and it is, you know, the divisiveness and the democracy on the line. And there's so much to be worried about. So but I do think that part of what, um, you know, what I learned from the election is um, despite doing a lot of great stuff, and this is something I think we talked about last time, you know, d voters didn't necessarily know about it, or if they knew about it, they didn't really understand it, right? Remember, I mean, before the, going to the election, I think I shared with you that, you know, like something like 20% of people even knew that the bipartisan infrastructure deal had passed or something. So, so I think that there's, I mean, I think there's things we need to do about messaging um, in terms of making sure people understand what it is Democrats care about and what, what it is that they're doing. Um, there are these long-standing brand issues with the Democratic Party. You kind of hit on a couple, but obviously, you know, somehow that Democrats are bad on crime, which is just absolutely not true. Democrats um, it, that I work with across the country are, are um, you know, in doubling down on police investment as well as reforming police so that they're that they have um that that just police departments can evolve to deal with the changing nature of crime and mental health and everything else so like so but there's a lot of messaging to do around that i mean there's certainly a big percentage of people that for some reason still have this outdated idea that democrats 
you know, are somehow soft on crime or. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I think it's new. Like some Democrats are soft on crime, but that doesn't mean that all Democrats are soft on crime. Yeah, that's right. I mean, yeah, to be fair, we we had a, a, a very, the very far extreme of our party saying nonsense about defunding police and other stuff. So that's and, you know, of course, Republicans seize on that. And then I think amplify that as if that's the whole party's belief. And that's absolutely not true. And so that no, absolutely true. You're right on that. Um, and then the economy, too, of course. Right. Um, you know, going into the, the election, um, polls showed that Americans trusted Republicans more on the economy, which I think is crazy. Actually, if you like historically look at things, Democrats have really been the party where job creation has happened, where um, where the economy's been doing doing really well, and then we've had you know Republicans have ta- cut taxes and kind of ha- you know were invested in wars and things have gone down, and then we've the Democrats have had to bring it back up. But it's a you know, but it's clearly a, a, an Achilles heel for Democrats, and um, you know, and when yeah. well, and they just surrender the ground on it. Like I've never, not once, really heard a Democrat make the case seriously for fiscal conservatism, right? Like, not since Clinton, really. I mean, like, balance the budget, cut spending, or take the super unpopular opinion that if we want to buy new things, we need to raise taxes. Right, right. No, I, 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 I'm not going to say we should raise taxes, but, <laughs> but I will say, um, I, I will say that what I do believe is that you're absolutely right that we don't talk about it in the right ways. And, and look, this was a, this, and you know, and we, and, and to your earlier point, we do have some people on our far, are the very far flank the Democratic Party, to be fair, that, you know, do, you know, are happy to embrace the label of socialist, right? Which, and then that gets amplified. That is not the vast majority, the the majority Democratic Party, um, you know, are, 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 you know, just remember Joe Biden, I am a capitalist, right? I mean, you know, we shouldn't have to, that, if we're, if we're, if we're having to tell people that we're capitalists, like we're losing the fight. We need to, to really think about our messaging on that. So I'd say one last point on that I've been thinking a lot about, which is, um, is that, we went through this really unique period of time with COVID. So, you know, Joe Biden, who is absolutely a moderate, who is absolutely not an extremist, you know, spent a lot of money, frankly, right, with the Democratic Congress because of this really unique time we were in. And it was the right response for the moment of COVID. We had to invest to keep businesses afloat during COVID. We had to invest to, um, you know, to um, to make sure that people had access to the internet because that's how they were going to school and working during COVID. So there was, you know, so there was a lot of this stuff that was done. And then, you know, and then, and then, and then we were able to parlay that into some additional historic work on infrastructure and climate and other things, these big investments that we're making in the country, um, which I which think- no one else could get done. Which no one else could get done. And they were super important. But I understand- that we need to uh, that we need to understand as Democrats that some people look at that and go, oh my gosh, it's all that spending. We need to explain why it happened. That it's you know, and this is not a this is not a free for all. Everybody get free money, um, and you know, and that's how it gets that's how it gets um, talked about. And and most people, most Americans don't like that. Most Americans do not want free stuff. They want to work for it. They want to they want to earn it. And so we need to be careful. I think that again, what we did, we should be so proud of it. Met the moment. Um, but but, you know, once those investments are made and we're going to have a lot of responsibility at the state and local level to shepherd um, that money responsibly to um, to do what it needed to do to help individuals and working families. Um, but, you know, we need to be cognizant that we do not give ammunition to this idea that we're or give credence to this idea that we're somehow, you know, big spenders, big government. You know, that's really because, you know, that's that a I don't think it's true and b it's not at all salient politically.
And I think that I would also really love to hear a Democrat actually talk about cutting funding or to say, like, I want to do this new program. So I've looked at the programs that we're already paying for. And here's a couple that I think we could cut. Because I think that Democrats are never going to outrun the optics of being bad with money and Americans being Republicans is good with money unless they start getting vocal about the things that they're doing that are fiscally responsible. It's the optic. I mean, it's not true. Those tax cuts that Republicans keep pushing through cost a boatload of money and are targeted to the wrong people. Um, you know, tax cuts for billionaires are not. But I but I but I take your point. Right. Is that that's it, that it's a messaging problem um, at a minimum and um, and that we need to to make sure that that's not the overwhelming belief with, you know, with particularly uh, swing voters and independent voters and even moderate Republicans that they understand, you know, understand Demi- that, you know, what Democrats really stand for. So I would be remiss not to ask you the most annoying que- question of this week. Do you want Joe Biden to run again in 2024? Do you think you should? I think Biden's got to decide if he wants to run again. But, you know, I mean, and, and his age is not an insignificant factor in his decision. But but I mean, sure, absolutely. I mean, Biden, Biden just delivered the the best uh, midterm election um, for Democrats in 40 years or whatever. Right. So, I mean, it would be a crazy thing to say today that, you know, I don't want Biden to run. Biden is um, Biden. Biden deserves a boatload of credit uh, for where we are today. So if he wants to run and thinks he has the, you know, the energy and stamina to do so, then I'm going to, you know, I'm going to wait and see what he says about that. So your take is that Democrats won because of Joe Biden, not in spite of him? I think I, I do think that had there been a different president in the White House that was not so clearly moderate, if if it was a clearer distinction between Republican extremism and Democratic extremism, I don't know that I don't think I'm not sure the outcomes would have been the same. He was absolutely a factor in Democrats messaging about this being an extremist versus a mainstream um, election. Ooh, I think it's just it's tough with Biden. And it. It's hard to even talk about because I'm I'm such a fan, honestly, like he's my grandpa, Joe. He's my moderate president. I'm a big fan of Biden. But if you listen to voters and focus groups or even the listener emails that I received, like his age is a factor. And I hate to say that because it feels mean, but, you yeah. know, it is people don't like Trump or Biden because they yeah. think they're both too old. Look, I, yeah, I get that. It's totally fair. And again, I, you know, I, what I do believe, Biden aside, right? And again, he gets all the credit today for what for where we are. Um, but I will say that I mean, what I do for a living, right, is 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 identify and nurture up and coming elected officials, bef- uh, you know, across the country. And um, you know, I absolutely think we are in the midst of a generational change, and that's exciting to me. And I think that that's true. so. So I've you know that I'm happy to talk another hour about that. But I mean, that is um, you know, there are so many fantastic governors and mayors and state legislators, um, you know, and um, you know, and I and we are going to have generational change. I mean, this is not just Biden. This is the top of both tickets across in the Senate and the House. It's you know, very old folks. And I'm excited to see. Some of my friends and others take the mantle and take the reins on on running this country. So, um, so I, I'm excited about that. Debbie, thank you so much for all of your time and for coming back on the show. As a friendly reminder, you owe me three more appearances, and then you get a spiffy five timers jacket. Uh, you got them anytime. I'm always happy to come on, <laughs> and hopefully, hopefully, we'll see you at uh, our conference we're having at the end of the month. Yeah, um, I think that you actually will. I'm so excited. I'm excited too. It'll be great to meet you in person. All right, guys, that's it for me. If you liked this podcast, don't forget to like, rate, and review it wherever you're listening. And as a reminder, my inbox is always open.
Send your thoughts, comments, questions, guest suggestions, whatever, to talk at moderatepartypodcast.com. See you next week.